The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
want to make sure Reiko is done. Our wonderful Reiko. Fill this with so much life. We, the members of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco, acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral lands of the Ohlone peoples who have served as stewards of this region for generations. Welcome and good morning. I am Worship Associate Mari Magaloni Ramos, and I will be leading the service today. We're delighted to have you with us. I'm happy to be joined on the chancel by Worship Associate Dennis Adams and by Cal Ball, who inspired this service. Uh, Cal is a member of the church and very active with You, You, The Vote. And uh, we're honored also to have Reverend John Buren share some words and give the benediction at the end of the service today. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're watching online, I encourage you to download the order of service so you can follow along. And uh, we also encourage you to sign up to receive the newsletter, The Flame, so you can stay informed about the goings-on in our community. And the order of service also has activities and opportunities for you to engage in, and we would love for you to join us. We'd love to meet you. We'd like to give thanks to the people who are making today's service possible. Our beloved organist, Reiko Oda Lane. Our guest musician, Tommy Kessiger. Our song leader, Ben Rudiak Gould. Eric Shackelford and Shuli Ong working the cameras. We have Tyler Hester on sound. Our sexton, Kelvin Jones, who is helping us function in our building today. Athena Papadakos for the incredibly beautiful flowers uh, decorating the space. And our head usher, Linda Messner. Tom Brookshire, Les James, and Ralph Fenn, who will be hosting the Zoom coffee hour after the service. And thank you to the Good Trouble Congregation Squad for the sandwiches and drinks that will be provided at the letter writing party that will be held in the courtyard directly after the service. Cal Ball, please tell us about this Good Trouble Congregation movement. Good morning. The UUA social justice campaign, known as Side with Love, under which the democracy initiative, UU the Vote, resides, is sponsoring an initiative this election cycle called Good Trouble Congregation. Um, Mari will speak more about this, but Good Trouble is coming from a speech that John Lewis gave in uh, 2020 at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, memorializing uh, the tragedy of Black Sunday uh, back in 1965. Congregations are, engage, are encouraged to engage in good trouble, such as organizing phone banks, door-to-door -door canvassing, volunteering to support uh, national efforts of UU the Vote, and in doing so uh, can earn a designation known as a, uh, the Good Trouble Congregation. So for becoming a Good Trouble congregation, you get bragging rights and a bag of swag from UU the Vote. All right. 
Today we invite you to join us immediately after the service to write personalized letters uh, to voters. Uh, these are voters in battleground states living in underserved neighborhoods. And what we want to do is we want to encourage them to vote. Personalized letters, it turns out, when you do the analysis, they're almost equal to phone banking and just under door-to-door -door canvassing in terms of their effectiveness. We're able to actually measure the effect of, you know, whatever campaign that we're running. You'll hear from the brief training that we'll had, uh, we had that in 2020, uh, 3 million letters were sent and resulted in 125,000 votes. Now, it seems like a small percentage until you realize just how thin the margins were in some of these states uh, that were targeted. So we'll have a short training, uh, then we're going to have a little lunch and refreshments. So please join us for that. Thank you, Liz. Uh, for those of you uh, unable to get to the church, we are working on a program that if you want to get engaged, we're working on a program right now where you can reach out to us, let us know, and we will uh, find a way to deliver the letters to you, and then we'll come pick them up, and you can write them in your own time. So just keep an eye out in the flame and in future orders of service, and you'll see how you can contact us. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Cal. And uh, the UUSF Women's Rights Group um, is supporting our efforts to become a Good Trouble congregation with a focus on reproductive justice and uh, are organizing another letter writing session on August 20th, and they invite you to participate in an all-day re reproductive freedom retreat on October 1st. So visit their table. They're going to be joining us in the courtyard uh, later today. So, let's enter into sacred space together. We begin by lighting our blue candle in honor of all of you participating from afar that we may bring your spirit into this space until such time as we can all be together again. And now, from wherever you find yourselves, please stand as you are willing or able. Let's sing our first hymn of the morning together, hymn number 113, Where is Our Holy Church? and class. 
now in the effort to draw us even further into this sacred space, we'll have our chalice and chalice lighting, the words of which are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And then we'll go right into our covenant and doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. Please join me in a moment of reflection and meditation by Daniel Cantor. God of many names and mystery beyond all naming, persist in guiding us to a quiet measure of this moment that we may link heart to heart in the stillness and the calm. Leaving behind all scurry and fury, rush and contempt for the shore of this quiet moment. We who gather today, coming from many corners of the land, join in breath over breath so that we might hold the suffering and care for the mourning and celebrate with the joyful
Today we pray over those in our midst who struggle and appreciate those who have enough spirit to give today. We pray in the names of all those known and unknown, present and absent, remembered and forgotten. We pray in the name of all helpers of humankind. Amen.
great, I have to follow that. That was wonderful. Why do I vote? Like many young men, my father enlisted in the Army shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor. At the time, he was a credit manager for a department store and living with his mother in Dallas. He found that the military ethos suited him and decided he wanted to become an officer. He applied to officer candidate school, passed all the written requirements, but failed the physical because he didn't meet the minimum weight requirement. Seeing how much he wanted it, the doctor suggested that he go out and eat as many bananas as he could stomach and come back right away for another weigh-in. He managed to choke down God knows how many of them, <laughs> and thus began his career in the Army, which would span 30 years and three wars. He was a natural leader and loved the command assignments that put him in direct contact with the enlisted men. Later, he would be moved into higher-level command positions, but would always miss his relationship with the frontline soldiers. His love for the Army was driven by the sense of community, a community bound together by a higher purpose. He never glorified violence. There was never a gun in our house. He hated war and would never speak about what he did in wartime. For my dad, integrity and intelligence were the highest attributes one could strive for. He loved vigorous debate and would start an argument just for the fun of it. He had a very strong, some would say overdeveloped, sense of right and wrong and had an uncompromising ethical standard. The running joke in our house was that my father would turn in his own grandmother for cheating on her taxes. Growing up poor and Jewish in Texas, he knew something of hardship and discrimination, but always believed in the power of the rule of law as a covenant binding all of us into civil community. Fast forward to 2020, and fair to say I was in a constant state of low-level rage interrupted by brief moments of fury over what had happened in our country. I'm glad my dad was not here to see what had been elected as the 45th president. He would not recognize the country he dedicated his life to serve, a country where lying, low character, and ignorance is being celebrated and rewarded, where nothing is more important than money, and in which a state religion has now been established and imposed. I had retired in early 2020, and like so many others, I was intent on doing something to give back to the community. I had no idea what that meant, having never done any activist work. My dear friend Mari and I had been having deep conversations about uh, Unitarian Universalism, and I joined the church as a way to learn, get engaged, and to serve. I attended General Assembly in June of that year, something I would not recommend to folks brand new to the church. Uh, smoke was trailing out of my ears for weeks afterwards. And I, but I did hear about a new campaign, and it was new in this year, called UU the Vote. Toward the end of GA, there was a phone bank party with volunteers from all over the country calling into Texas to help people in underserved neighborhoods get registered and develop a plan to vote. 
I was terrified to cold call people. But you know, I dove in and actually got to have a few conversations. I got to hear about how Californians moving into Texas were ruining the state with their socialism and fancy cheeses. <laughs> no, not kidding. No. But I also got to talk to a woman who would go on to register to vote for the first time. Later, when calling into Florida, I got to talk to a young man who said, dude, I'm taking my, my girlfriend and her entire family to vote. I spoke with an older woman in Georgia who politely let me introduce myself and go through a little spiel. And when I asked her if she intended to vote, she simply replied, oh, honey, we got this. And suddenly, my, my heart was full. Later, uh, I began taking on a support role, primarily running Zoom parties for national phone banks. UU the vote squads were formed up, and we became practiced and efficient at putting together phone bank parties that could have as many as 150 people calling voters in battleground states. In the end, 5,000 volunteers across 450 congregations contacted 3 million voters in battleground states. But something else happened. One day it occurred to me that I had friends all across the country, that inadvertently I had stumbled into community a diverse and beloved community of common cause and shared passion. We laughed, we listened, we grew to trust each other. I had found love. I realized that this intelligent, engaged, and diverse community is a living testament to the possibility of the broader, beloved community we so ardently seek to bring forth. So why do I vote? I vote to preserve our democratic norms and principles, to support the values of humane, just, and dignified treatment of all people, bodily autonomy, and a healthy planet. I vote because my dad devoted his life to ensuring that I could do so in a free and fair election. I vote because if the arc of history is to bend towards justice, then we are all going to have to do the bending. Sorry, rookie year. <laughs> the offering today goes to support UU the vote, and it is greatly appreciated and gladly accepted, so thank you very much.
This reading is an excerpt from Dear Chabon by the Mixed Blood Creek author Chip Livingston from the book Radical Hope, Letters of Dissent in Dangerous Times, edited by Carolina de Robertus. This letter is a message dictated to the author from the spirit world, from a Cree ancestor addressing his grandson in reference to the election of Trump in 2017. Where we are, we know a wholer sense of empathy, especially now, grandson, when you're headed on to worries larger than your heads conceived the world to be. You think the whole world is ending, but only parts of it are ending, and only as you've known them. The little what you've known of it, we keep learning. Chipper boy, this ain't scolding. Sure, I'm prone to coaching, and this is also a celebration. You exist. Despite everything they've done to us, you exist. With everything they're doing now to silence and undermine your objections and confidence, Chabon, you exist. So don't get run down. Instead, get up and shout. Then dance. Don't forget to stomp and dance. Feel your feet in the sand. That's your freedom. Remember the balance and share as much good news as you acknowledge the bad. Spread even more good news. This trouble too shall pass. And what comes after this muddy patch is so much better, more solid, more united in humanity than this planet has yet seen in our living history. The message is a recognition of you and the helpers who planned at the real chaos of Earth's growing pains. It's an awakening, a celebration of new awareness. And we're grateful, son, to everyone who's paying attention. We're paying attention. All creation is listening. Make your noise, but also remember to quiet down and distinguish the truth from illusion. Keep your chin up. You're not going back underground, but there are times you'll have to tread water. This is just another one of them. <laughs> and you know how to swim.
In the letter that Dennis read from by Chip Livingston, a Cree ancestor returns with a reassuring message for his grandson after Trump's election. You exist, he tells the young man. You exist. Two little words that embody the triumph of generations. You exist. A celebration of endurance, but also an imperative and proof of a mysterious evolutionary process that might be interrupted, but not defeated. A purpose not beholden to human understanding. You exist. Later in the letter, the ancestor tells the young man, the continent is calling out for its true citizens, restoring the balance of brown people who first emerged upon its mud. I'm telling you, the land is almost ready for your occupation. I love when mystery and history collide, exposing that messy layer where fate and free will become indistinguishable. There's a story about Charles Darwin that has become for me a sort of psalm <laughs> that I go to when I want to celebrate and po uh, ponder the puzzle. In 1862, Charles Darwin received a package in the mail. It was from Madagascar, sent by horticulturist James Bateman. When Darwin opened the box, he was astonished to find orchids unlike any he'd ever seen. Forming the nectary of the flowers were whip-like green spurs that were over 12 inches in length. And even stranger, the nectar was at the very bottom of them. He surmised that there had to be a pollinator moth <laughs> with a proboscis long enough to reach the nectar at the end of the spur. When he presented his theory to his peers, he was ridiculed. It wasn't until 20 years after Darwin's death that the orchid's moth was found to exist, and not until 1992 was the first photographic evidence of the moth visiting the orchid captured by biologist Luntz T. Wasserthal. In 2004, 143 years after Darwin's prediction, night vision videographic technology had advanced sufficiently so that the biologist Philip J. DeVry was able to capture the first videographic evidence of the moth feeding from and pollinating the orchid. I love so much about this story. I love how the pursuit of the evolutionary process evolved as the scientific instruments evolved. But <laughs> what I love the most is that the orchid and the moth had been carrying out their exuberant, life-giving dance under the moonlight for who knows how long <laughs> before it was observed by human beings. In these challenging times when we're facing the shutdown of reason, 
when theocrats have seized control of our judiciary, when great institutions of science and learning are being undermined by right-wing autocrats, I find the story of the orchid and the moth reassuring. Darwin didn't need to see the moth to know that it existed. He saw the orchid. He saw the spur. He saw the nectar at the bottom of it. I like to think of beloved community in this context, that I hunger for its nectar as proof that it exists. In difficult times when my orchid is hard to find or is kept from me, my hunger will not let me forget to whom I belong. My wings will not know the weight of despair because my longing, my longing is my hope. John Lewis, the great civil rights leader, author, and congressman known for his tireless work for human and voting rights, was arrested approximately 40 times in his life. He was the first person to be severely beaten as he tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on the fateful day that would come to be known as Bloody Sunday because of the brutality of the attack by police on the marchers. He was frequently asked in his, in his later years why he hadn't become bitter after all he'd seen and been through. He'd answer, because he knew in his gut that right would prevail. Born in Alabama to sharecroppers in 1940, John Lewis would recount how, in their attempt to keep him safe, his elders would often admonish him to stay quiet and not make trouble when something upsetting happened. But he was 15 years old when 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched. And he realized that being quiet and not making trouble was no buffer against danger. He'd taken to listening to a young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. on an old radio for inspiration and decided to write him a letter. He sent a letter to Dr. King. And Dr. King invited John Lewis to come to Montgomery. The moth and the orchid had found each other. Educated in the ways of nonviolence at Highlander Folk School in Tennessee with alumni that included the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Pete Seeger, and Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis lived according to this philosophy, that when we see something that is not right, not fair, or not just, we are morally obligated to stand up, speak out, and get in the way. John Lewis called it getting into good trouble. After the successes and the struggles of the civil rights era, it's hard to swallow the setbacks we're witnessing. They are not small. We've actually witnessed an attempted coup at our nation's capital by right-wing white nationalist terrorists 
Incredibly, some of their allies and conspirators, conspirators still hold office in the capital and have yet to suffer any consequences. It is not hyperbole to say that our democracy hinges on the results of the upcoming election. But let's remember that this is an ancient story. In the Old Testament, like clockwork, every two generations, the gains of the past would be undone. The grandchildren would go astray and find themselves in bondage again. But then, a new redeemer, schooled by the hardship and inspired by ancestral victories, would rise and lead the people back to freedom. And each time they prevailed, their relationship to each other and to the great source of life and wonder would grow deeper. It would evolve. So yes, we find ourselves being pushed backwards right now, but we mustn't give in to our despair. The story of the world does not belong to the 1960s and 70s. This is an infinite story. We must stop saying, this is what we did, and then crying because someone broke it. We must say instead, this is how we do it, and get back to work. Those of us who have witnessed moments when love has triumphed over hate, when curiosity has triumphed over fear, those of us who have consistently walked the long and sacred path of peace, and have witnessed its mysterious power to wind its way in the direction of folks who were thought to be lost, those of us who have patiently tended to the spirit of a broken person and have seen it heal and then bud and then blossom and then bear fruit, we must tell our stories, we must share them they are prophetic. They are instructional. Here's Sufi master and beloved Persian poet Rumi sharing such a story with us. If you are seeking, seek us with joy, for we live in the kingdom of joy. Do not stray into the neighborhood of despair. There are hopes. They are real. They exist. I tell you, sons exist. Thank you, Rumi. We need to be on the lookout for the new redeemers, the light-giving sons of our time, and we must amplify their splendor. Unitarian Universalists are uniquely equipped for this because our religion was founded on good trouble. We're the heretics who dare to question every religious, social, or political narrative in our responsible search for truth and meaning, we are the church that challenges its people to expand rather than shrink the mystery. We are the church that affirms the right to act on conscience because we know from experience that humankind, humankind is innately good. We nurture curiosity because we recognize it as the key to compassion and enlightenment. This is why democratic process is one of our founding principles. 
This is why democratic process is an integral part of our religious practice. UUs have a deep respect for the interchange of diverse voices because that's how we deepen in wisdom. Embracing diversity is why we do not put limits on expressions of love. We are the church of Scopius love. We are desperately needed in the world right now. We must not allow ourselves to despair at what has been upended. We have been here before. We have overcome before. We must recognize the moment we are in and rise to the occasion like Cal's father did and John Lewis did and John Buren does and Stark King did. We must act. We must confront their attempts at building their coarse anti-democratic monuments over our legacy. What they are erecting is ephemeral. What we are restoring is everlasting. We must confront them without ambiguity. And may the ardor of our response be commensurate to the gratitude we owe our ancestors who sacrificed in every way for us. We owe too great a debt to allow ourselves to be cowed. Let them comprehend again and again and again that human dignity is an implacable and restless spirit, and it rises in righteous anger when it's provoked. Let those who trample on democracy tremble at the sight of us. Good people, free people, a world community begat by and devoted to the interconnected web of all existence, schooled by histories and arts and sciences, impervious to their threats and lies. We are the embodiment of relentless hope and revolutionary love. We exist. And we will not yield until there is liberty and justice for all. Today, we embark on a letter-writing campaign that will launch our commitment to become a good trouble congregation. May our letters, like Darwin's orchids, prove to their recipients that beloved community already exists. We are here. And may they be called by that certainty to further the momentum of generations and help our nation evolve into the real and true democracy whose nectar we know in our guts we are made to partake of. Gracias a la vida. May it be so. Amen. Please join us in singing our last hymn of the morning, number 121, We'll Build a Land.
Please be seated. At the end of this service, following the postlude, I will again be here on the chancel after Mari and the other worship leaders have departed with an invitation to anyone who may be new among us today, an invitation to hear just a few stories of why this building and its congregation may rightly be termed a religious center with a wide and civic circumference. An invitation because democracy itself, like religious community, can only be renewed by invitations to active participation because the spark that that flaming chalice stands for, which will go forth from here within each of us as the fire of commitment, as the flame of hope and faith, as the warmth of human love, because that blessing must be kept alive May it go with all of us in peace this day and evermore. Amen.